0: Hello, I'm Ollie Mann, and welcome to Why Adventures to the Edge of Knowledge. In each episode, we're joined by pioneering scientists and researchers to dissect a scientific conundrum. <laughs> Looking back through history, It's humbling to recall the sheer amount of illnesses and diseases which were once incurable. Smallpox, cholera, typhoid fever, plague. Antibiotics are arguably the greatest medical breakthrough of the 20th century. Whether found in nature or man-made, they're designed to kill bacteria, saving us from even common ailments that might have finished off your great-great-grandparents. But before we get complacent, here's a couple of words for you antibiotic resistance worldwide cases of infections caused by antibiotic resistant bacteria are steadily increasing and are expected to kill 10 million of us each year by 2050 if no action is taken now new antibiotics are really difficult to develop and test as the bacteria mutates to outwit them so quickly so what can we do when medicine no longer works Could the answer lie in nanobiotics? Today on Why, we're asking, could tiny robots stop the antibiotics apocalypse?
1: If we put a thousand molecular machines side by side, we would get the width of a human hair. So that's how small they are. And when we look at them machines either under an electron microscope. We don't see them, we see the aftermath of their actions.
0: Dr. Anna Santos is a microbiologist at Rice University in Houston, Texas.
1: It's really alarming to see the trends that we are seeing and the data that is supporting this kind of apocalyptic perspective. And that's why we strive every day to try to find new solutions. So, molecular machines are small synthetic molecules that are composed of two parts. So, they have a motor and a stator. And these two parts are connected by a double bond, which we call, quote-unquote, an axle. And what happens when these molecules are activated by a stimuli is that the motor starts rotating really, really fast, imagine like a drill. And we can leverage this motion to drill through cells and kill them. For instance, killing bacteria, killing fungi, killing pathogens. And this allows us to try to find new tools to fight antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are no longer susceptible to the drugs that are used to kill them.
0: So you said that they're activated. How are they activated?
1: So what happens is that the motor part of the molecule, when it receives light, it undergoes a conformational change that causes the molecule to switch positions, basically very simple terms. And this repeated motion, so it goes through several cycles of conformational changes. Imagine going through a clock And you go from zero to 15 to 30 to zero again. The molecule does this systematically under the presence of light. And this causes a drilling motion that is able to pierce through cells and killing them.
0: What kind of light? Is it a special light that a doctor would administer?
1: It could be. So we can manipulate these molecules with different chemical groups so that they respond to different wavelengths of light. So the first generation of these molecules, they were actually activated by UV radiation, which is really, really powerful. So the molecule could kill basically everything, good cells, bad cells, everything, which we didn't want. And on top of that, UV radiation is damaging to our cells, as we all know. So, what we did next was to tweak the chemistry of a little bit of the molecule so then it would become activated by visible light, specifically blue light, which we can provide to the cell via an external lamp, which a doctor could perfectly use in their practice to treat an infection. And for instance, this is similar to what already happens in the clinic with a type of light-based therapy called photodynamic therapy, which is used to treat acne and is also used for some anti-aging procedures like removing wrinkles or softening wrinkles. So the type of light that we use is actually FDA-approved. The limitation of this type of light source is that it can only penetrate a few millimeters into the skin at best. If we want to treat a deep-seated infection, we need light to penetrate deeper. So we need to look at activating the molecules with light sources such as near-infrared light, which can go deeper, centimetres deeper into the
0: skin. So what do these machines, as we're calling them, look like? I mean, to the naked eye, they're presumably invisible, right? They're, They're super tiny.
1: They are not visible at all in the naked eye. They are even smaller than a bacteria. So they are made from a couple of hundred atoms at best. And just for having a perspective in terms of their size, if we put a thousand molecular machines side by side, we would get the width of a human hair. So that's how small they are. And when we look at them machines either under an electron microscope, we don't see them, we see the aftermath of their actions. So, we see, for instance, a bacteria which has like tiny pinpoint holes in their cell wall, which indicates to us, okay, there was a nanomachine that acted through here.
0: So, how would you put them onto human skin then, in the form of a cream or an ointment?
1: So, we can envision having a form of an emulsion that we apply on the top of the skin if we have an infection, and then we irradiate the molecular machines for them to act and insert their antibacterial activity. For instance, if we have a wound, this is a technology that is very apt to wounds because wounds are easily accessible to visible light, in blue light specifically.
0: I mean, I'm sure this is going to get complicated now if it wasn't already, <laughs> but... How do they react to light like a power source? Because they're not actually machines, they're not actually electric. What's happening to make them move?
1: So it's just simply the energy of the photons gets converted into mechanical action. Like I mentioned before, the machine is composed of the rotor part, or we also call it a motor, that has the motion That moves around and then the stator which stays fixed. So when the light is absorbed by the rotor portion of the molecule, it undergoes a change, a rearrangement in their shape, sort of like a toggle switch, if we can imagine. And this change in the shape of the molecule generates a strain in the bond that connects the two parts of the machine and this strain that is created by the absorption of light is then released because the rotor rotates. You can imagine like a strain that you're applying, a spring that you are twisting. It it saves that energy and when you release it, it goes back. So it is that kind of energy that is applied to the machine. But the initial stimuli is light, is photons.
0: It's so interesting that so much of the language around the design sounds like, you know, other fields of innovation that we're used to. I mean, you were talking about motors and axles and drills. How much influence from machines that we use every day goes into engineering a molecule?
1: Absolutely. So that is kind of the inspiration, not only the engineering that we see in the macro world, but even in the micro world inside the cell, we have natural molecular machines, we have enzymes that do this sort of mechanical action inside the cell. So we draw a lot of inspiration to conceptualize the molecular machine. So like you said, when we think about a machine in the real world, we do have a motor, an axle, a chassis, and all of these go into the design of the molecular machine. So if we can imagine what I mentioned before, the rotor which is the motor of the car. If we think about the double bond that connects the two parts, that's like the axis of the motor, right, inside the car. And then we have the different parts that act like a stabilizing chassis. So it really draws a lot of inspiration from engineering of real-world components.
0: What happens to the nanobot once the drug has been delivered?
1: So once the drug has been delivered... Let's imagine a wound that we have and we want to prevent an infection or treat an infection. So we apply the nanomachine to the wound and the nanomachine is going to bind to the membranes of the pathogen. So it's going to bind to the phospholipids that make out the outer part of the bacteria. When we apply the light, the machine is going to start drilling. Like we say, it's going to undergo those conformational changes that I mentioned before. And this is going to push the machine through the cell membrane what happens is like a balloon that has been pierced from the inside out everything's gonna leak and the cell just dies
0: the cell just dies so it doesn't get absorbed into your body or i suppose it does but that's safe
1: it's going to depend on the route of the administration. We are talking mostly about skin infections and wound infections in specific because there is a large unmet need for new therapies to treat wounds because most conventional regimes that are used to treat wounds are based on the use of systemic antibiotics that have a really hard time reaching to specific places, specific wound in the skin. On the other hand, there have been some developments in terms of using even metallic nanoparticles to treat wounds, but that can cause toxicity. If you imagine the wound environment, there's a lot of debris, lots of dead cells, and the bacteria are festering in that environment. So our nanomachines are going to bind specifically to the bacteria in that Environment, and we can tweak the chemistry of the nanomachine so it binds even more specifically to certain types of bacteria that we know are more common in wounds so that the effect is targeted and specific with minimal damage to the host.
0: Imagining light-activated microscopic drills burrowing into cancer cells and basically exploding them from the inside is quite a thrilling thought. But so much more research has to be done to get us reliably to that point. One area of intensive study is in fungi, which I'm assuming has more relevance than treating the relatively innocent athlete's foot.
1: So, it's all preclinical research at this moment. So, we do have plans to continue with this research forward. And we have mostly focused on small animals, specifically vertebrates. We really don't know what we're going to get when we start trying these new drugs. So, we did want to start trying it with a very simple animal model, but an animal model that is validated and that provides useful information that can ultimately inform our studies when we move to higher organisms. So we started with small invertebrates, and we did see a lot of success with these small invertebrates. So what we did in our follow-up study was to use a different type of model, but always with this ethical mindset of utilizing existing resources to minimize animal use and animal pain. So what we did was to use what is called an ex vivo model. So and this ex vivo model was pig nails,
0: pig nails,
1: pig nails. And I can tell you that we just got this from a butcher.
0: Oh, okay. So pig nails not attached to the pig. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, right.
1: No. So we just got these from the butcher and our mindset was, okay, this was something that was going to go to waste, but it can serve a purpose still. So what we did was to infect these pig nails with the types of fungi that typically cause athletes' food. So we can study how our molecular machines can act against these at least food-causing pathogens. We also got really interesting results. And all of this builds up to provide us with a solid background to move to studies with living mice.
0: What success did you see then on these pigs' feet?
1: So we did see that our molecular machines, in combination with conventional antifungals, significantly reduced the amount of fungi that there was in the pigs' nails compared to just the conventional antifungal. So we can imagine having a therapy that uses a combination of our nanomachines plus a conventional antifungal that we can get from the pharmacy to improve the efficacy of the antifungal therapy. Because one of the main problems with this simple disease, this skin disease is caused by fungi, is that they are recurrent right? Normally, one treatment with an antifungal does not cure athletes' food. So maybe our strategy combining our new technology with a traditional technology can, in fact, be more efficient. And so the person does not need to always be treating their athletes' food every six months or so.
0: When we think of the spectre of antibiotic resistance, though, I suppose generally people are thinking of more serious wounds or things that are seen as being more serious wounds than something like athlete's foot. But fungal infections aren't as innocent as they appear, are they?
1: You're absolutely right. So particularly in immunocompromised people, so we can imagine people that are undergoing cancer therapy or people with HIV, fungal infections can Easily go from a localized infection to a systemic infection that can cause mortality rates over 50%. So it's really serious for them. Now, I would like to mention something really important here. What we are seeing more and more is that with climate change, fungal infections are becoming more prevalent. And now we don't still quite understand why this is happening, but what seems to be happening is that as the climate warms, we can imagine a fungi that is living on a marsh or in some river or something, and it's getting used to warmer and warmer environments every year. So it used to live at 25, so it couldn't colonize a person that whose body is at 37 degrees, right? But as temperatures get warmer, the fungi get adapted to warmer temperatures, so then they can jump from the environment to the person and cause an infection in a person. And this trend is going to continue with climate change. On the other hand, an important trend we are seeing with fungal diseases is that for decades, we have used massive amounts of antifungals to control plagues in agriculture. We have now data collected that shows us that antifungal resistant mechanisms from the agriculture are jumping to humans, and we have isolates of fungi that have been retrieved from agricultural fields, from crops, that are showing up in people. When we think about antimicrobial resistance, so it's not just antibacterial or antifungal resistance. All of these pathogens, they are developing resistance to the drugs that use the treatment. We need to have a comprehensive approach. It's what it's called a one health approach. We are all interconnected. So the climate affects the clinic and the clinic affects the environment. So it's really alarming to see the trends that we are seeing and the data that is supporting this kind of apocalyptic perspective. And that's why we strive every day to try to find new solutions because we know the old ones are not reliable anymore.
0: Well, whilst we're talking about some doomsday scenarios, I can hear you're very enthusiastic about this research, obviously, but is there a risk that molecular machines could themselves be dangerous? I don't mean in terms of their clinical testing. I mean, if they got into the wrong hands or if there was a leak from a lab, could they cause harm?
1: It's always important to pose those sorts of questions. We do think that at this moment, we cannot foresee that sort of danger. And I'm going to try to explain why. So this is proprietary technology. Only a few people have access to these molecules right now. It's not like an antibiotic that anyone has access to a formula and can synthesize them. Only a few selected people in the world are probably capable of synthesizing these molecules. They require specialized reagents that are not accessible to everyone. On the other hand, let's say they leak into the environment they would degrade really fast because these molecules are still a little unstable. So when we keep them in the bench at room temperature, they degrade after a while. They are also photosensitive in the sense that if we expose them to the light for a long time, they also degrade and then they have no activity whatsoever. And what this tells us is that we do have some refinement to do until these molecules can reach the clinic in terms of stability of the molecules so that their activity is not lost. In terms of your specific question, if these molecules get into the environment or if they get into the wrong hands, we don't really foresee at the moment a danger, but there is something that we always need to consider with the new technology, whatever the technology is.
0: And if you ever get athlete's foot... Mm-hmm. Would you ever, you know, take some molecular machine cream out of the lab? <laughs> would that be straying beyond ethical boundaries too?
1: Not right <laughs> now because there's still a lot of work to do. It just is we've only tried it in dead pig's feet. So, but in the future, we do think that this is a really interesting approach because we do know that this is a very hard disease to treat. Okay, it's just typically not life threatening, but it's very unpleasing from an aesthetic point of view and it afflicts millions of people so definitely it's something that we want to look more into
0: So, scientists are working across disciplines to fight the growing threat of antibiotic-resistant pathogens. And one solution seems to be light-activated nanobots, small enough to drill into the bacteria and explode it from the inside. That's all from us today on Why, thanks to Dr. Anna Santos. Thank you. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you never miss an edition and follow us on social media as well. Links are in the show notes. I've been Ollie Mann, asking why. See you next time.
1: Why was written and presented by Ollie Mann. The lead producer was Anne Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison artwork is by james parrott theme music is by dj food why is a podmasters production